Okay, okay, we're going to get to the podcast in just one minute. But imagine I gave you the opportunity to invest in Microsoft, in Apple, in Tesla at its infancy. And now you made all this profit and it would be unbelievable. You'd be so thankful and so grateful. I believe that that day is today for Torch. Because for the next 36 hours, every donation you contribute at givetorch.net is doubled by our generous matchers, and you can come in at the ground floor. Yes, last year, over 1 million people enjoyed our podcasts. You as well, I hope. And I believe we can get to 10 million this year, but we need your help. It's only one day a year that we ask. We need your contribution. We need your partnership. We love your partnership and your friendship. Please contribute at givetorch.net, givetorch.net. Every dollar is matched. I apologize for taking your time. Thank you so much in advance for your support. Enjoy this episode. You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Living Jewishly Podcast. Welcome back, my dear friends, to the Living Jewishly Podcast. This week, we're going to discuss the laws of Erev Pesach. We're going to particularly focus on three different simanim, three different chapters of halacha in the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, in the abbreviated Shulchan Aruch, chapters 107, 111, and 114. Chapter 107 begins with the laws of the month of Nisan. Today is Rosh Chodesh, and in our next segment in the Living Jewishly podcast, we're going to talk about a short and sweet segment on the month of Nisan. Today is Rosh Chodesh Nisan, and during the month of Nisan, we do not recite Tachanun. We do not perform any of the burial services. Any of the tzidukadin is not done on during the month of Nisan. And tzidkascha, which is usually recited in Mincha and Shabbos, is not either uh, recited during the month of Nisan. Now, tachnun is where we have supplications, where we ask for forgiveness and atonement. It's a daily insert that we have in our prayers. We don't include that during the month of Nisan. It is the custom to read the portions related to the Nisim, to the leaders of the tribes, during each of the first 12 days of Nisan. On the 13th day of Nisan, that we, we read from Parshas Baha'aloscha about the service of the Levites. One is not to fast during the month of Nisan, except for the fast for a dream. So there's a special fast that one would have uh, for a dream. If someone has a really bad dream. There's a special fast that they can fast to, I guess, repair what was revealed to them in that dream. Uh, for the firstborn on Erev Pesach, there's a special fast that's only for the firstborn males on Erev Pesach because they were saved from the plague of the firstborn. And a bride and groom on their wedding day, if they're getting married during the month of Nisan, they fast. These are the exceptions, and these are the only ones who are allowed to fast during the month of Nisan. On Shabbos Haggadah, which is going to be next Shabbos, the Shabbos prior to Pesach, many recite the Haggadah from Avadim Hayinu, from We Were Slaves in Egypt, instead of the usual psalm of Barchinafshi, because that Shabbos, the Shabbos Haggadah, was the beginning of our redemption. It was that first Shabbos that we were already the beginning of our redemption from Egypt has already begun. So that is the four halachas that are brought in the Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch about the month of Nisan. 
We're going to see more about it in the short and sweet segment shortly. Yes. During the intermediary days, something we're going to talk about next week, where you have the first two days of Pesach, the last two days of Pesach, and then the intermediary days of Pesach, where those intermediary days called Chol HaMoed, if they're not on Shabbos, they're regular weekdays that have special holiday uh, themes to them. We daven the holiday prayers. We're supposed to eat a festive meal during those days, but it's a day that you're, it's, it was created by our sages as part of the festive holiday, time to celebrate, but also time to prepare for the next second two days, the last two days of the holiday. So people, you can go to the store and you can buy the things that you need. Uh, you can, many people utilize this as an opportunity to go with their family on a trip. They can go to an amusement park. They can go to a petting zoo. They can go, you can go places. It's not one where you're not allowed to, during these intermediary days, to turn on electricity or anything like that. You can do that. It's, although it's holiday, we wear holiday clothes during those days, but still it's a in-between type holiday days. So again, the first two are like Shabbos. We don't drive. We don't do any type of creative labor except for cooking. Except for cooking, we don't turn the, the fire on, but we're allowed to cook from an existing fire. And then the last two days, they're also the same laws like Shabbos. The intermediary days, the Chol HaMoed, are days that you can do some labors. Okay? Okay. Now we're turning to Simon 111. And this is about searching for chametz. The night before Pesach, we search our homes and properties for chametz. Chametz refers to any of the five grains. So we're going to be saying the word chametz about a hundred times now. It refers to any of the five grains, wheat, barley, rye, oats, or spelt, that has come in contact with water and has fermented or risen. So breads, cereals, cookies, cakes, etc. Anything that has flour... Anything that has wheat or barley or rye or oats or spelt that is mixed with water, which is usually done. So if you take any type of food, I'll give you an example of something that you may not even think can have that. Um, There are some foods like licorice. Licorice, Twizzlers, has flour in it. If you look at the ingredients, you'll see that it has actual flour. So that would be actual chametz. You're like, what's the big deal? It's just a candy, right? It's true that it's just a candy, but it's a candy that has actual chametz in it. Not Now, there are things like corn that our custom is not to eat it because it's like a grain and perhaps we're, we're it's called kitniot, where we lived back in Europe it was they were in the same type in the same mills in the same factories they were producing them and grinding them and doing whatever they were doing uh where they were also dealing with wheat and oats and barley and rye and all of those so therefore a takana a declaration was made that we don't eat kitniot we don't eat things that are made of corn either on pesach now is it chametz it's not chametz but it is a custom of the Jewish people where we do not eat it on Pesach. Now, we can get into the, 
discussion, uh, the Sephardic Jews do eat it. They do eat it because they never accepted that custom. So many people want to become Sephardic. That's fine, but then you have to pay for it with 30 days of, uh, of slichot that they do prior to Rosh Hashanah, asking for atonement and forgiveness for all of those uh, kitniot that they ate. But once a custom is undertaken by the Jewish people, and this is the Jewish people all accepted, except for the Sephardic Jews, all of the Jewish people accepted this stringency. Therefore, it's not something that even though today we know it's not made in the same places, it's cleaner and we have different systems, still we don't remove that decree. Okay? So now, what is chametz? Chametz is any of the five grains, wheat, barley, rye, oats, or spelt, that has come in contact with water and is fermented or risen, like breads, cereals, cookies, cakes, etc. The search must begin at the onset of evening and should not be delayed. One should not begin eating 30 minutes prior to the search time so as not to get carried away. And this we have the same law, if you remember, when we spoke about Hanukkah. Hanukkah, you're not supposed to start eating or getting distracted with something within 30 minutes prior to lighting the Hanukkah candles. Why? Our nature is we get carried away with things. We're going to start eating, and then we're going to be tired, and then we're going to say, I'll do it later. Whatever it is, you can get carried away. Don't do it. The search should be done to the light of a single candle, not a torch. And today, our sages tell us, that a flashlight is permitted as well. I wanted to share with you a very important public service announcement. Be very careful if you're using a candle. Every single year, there are stories of houses that get burned down because they were searching the house for chametz and the fire of the candle caught onto the drapes or caught onto this or caught onto that, and it's dangerous. So if you do use a candle, great. Be very careful. Now, what we do is we recite the blessing, and at my home, we recite the blessing with a candle. Everyone has a flashlight as well, and we do one room, which is a safe room, an easy room to check with a candle. That way we fulfill the custom of using a candle, and the rest of the house we use a flashlight. So that way it's safer, especially my children uh, all want to help me, and they all want to be part of this mitzvah of searching for the chametz, and therefore uh, it is safer and something that I'm a little bit more comfortable with my children searching with a flashlight. Every room that could potentially have had chametz should be searched. Storage rooms, basements, attics. You know, if you have workers that worked in your attic, they may have left their cheeseburger, you know, bread uh, in your attic. That's chametz, right? It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, right? So the, the, the worker didn't know that he was, uh, you know, leaving over, you know, whatever it is. The idea is just be extra cautious and search every room that could possibly have chametz. Also, any utensils that may have been used for chametz should be searched. It is proper to clean the house first so that the searching for chametz can be simplified. And like my mother did, and like my grandmother did, and like my wife does, she is already deep in the cleaning of our home for Pesach. Cleaning the home, going through each bedroom, going through each closet, 
going through each cabinet, making sure that all the chametz is getting cleaned out from the house. A pen for cattle does not need searching. Why? Because you're serving them wheat, you serve them all of these grains to the animals, Do you need to search that, so that does not need searching. All cracks and crevices, as well as pockets of children's clothes, should be searched and shaken out carefully. Rooms or closets whose chametz contents will be sold to a non-Jew, and we'll see that shortly, and that's going to be sold the next morning, should be checked as well. Because tonight, the night before Pesach, it's not yet sold to the non-Jew. It's still yours, and therefore, it should be checked. Before searching for chametz, the following bracha should be recited, even though it will be removed and burned only the next day. Baruch atah Hashem alokeinu melech haolam asher kidishanu b'mitzvostav v'tzivanu al biur chametz. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the removal of chametz. After the search, all unknown chametz is nullified. It is proper not to interrupt the search with anything that isn't related to the search. One may search multiple locations, not only one home, with a single bracha. So if you're searching other areas, other locations, you can include it in that single blessing. You don't need to recite a new blessing every location. It is customary to have several pieces of chametz hidden so the searcher will find them, and so the blessing made for the search will not be in vain. So... What my daughter does, she takes these little bags, little Ziploc bags, and she'll put a Cheerio in each of them, and she'll put it 10 of them around the house in different places. Now, it's not a hide-and-seek game. The real purpose of it is so that I find them. I do a good enough search to find them. And that the blessing on removing chametz is actually applied to something because, thank God, the home is very, very clean. It's been thoroughly gone through by my wife, by our housekeeper, and now there's no chametz left in the house except for the designated area where chametz is. So I'm going to be reciting this blessing to remove the chametz, and there's no chametz to remove. So therefore, these 10 pieces fulfills that obligation, fulfills that blessing. Chametz that will be sold or eaten before Pesach should be set securely aside prior to the search. Chametz that is found during the search should be set aside to be burned the next morning at the chametz burning. After completing the search, one should nullify the ownership of the chametz, declaring that all chametz in his possession is null and void and does not belong to him any longer. It is best to declare with words. The words our sages uh, prepared for us in Hebrew, in Aramaic actually, called chamira v'chamira, all chametz and anything leavened that is in my possession, whether I have seen it or not, whether I have observed it or not, whether I have removed it or not, or whether I know about it or not, shall be considered nullified and ownerless as the dust on the earth. All rooms must be searched. One should avoid throwing wheat kernels for the kit, for the chickens on wet surfaces within 30 days of Pesach so that it'll be easier to clean out when Pesach comes. If one is traveling, oh, and they will not be around for the chametz search the night before Pesach, 
Sorry, a little typo there. It is proper to appoint a messenger to perform the search and to nullify the chametz. Additionally, if one is away from home for Pesach, they should nullify the chametz from whatever location they are in. So if you're traveling to Israel for Pesach, in Israel you can nullify the chametz that you have in your home in Houston. If one found chametz in their home on Pesach, they should cover it, and then on Chol HaMoed, it should be burned. If the size of the chametz found is larger than an olive size, a blessing should be recited upon burning it, which we'll learn about next week, the blessing upon burning the chametz. And if the chametz was found during the latter part of Pesach, it should be burned after Pesach, but without a blessing. So this concludes the searching for chametz, Simon 111 in the Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch. And now we're going to continue with the sale of chametz in Simon 114, chapter 114. A Jew who has chametz in his possession on Pesach is violating two biblical prohibitions, bal yeroe bal It shall not be seen and it shall not be found in your midst. Chametz should not be in our home on Pesach. Chametz that was in the possession of a Jew over Pesach is forbidden from being used forever. So, for example, there's a big challenge with alcohol. Alcohol is pure chametz because it's made of grains that are fermented with water. So what do you do if, if there's a Jewish-owned distillery and they didn't sell their chametz? What happens? You can never, ever drink that alcohol from that distillery. Oh, if it was sold to a non-Jew, oh, a guy can, can do what they want, but if it was sold to a non-Jew, then you can and here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. We need to understand when we're talking about sale, it's not a joke. You'll see this in the next 20 laws that we're going to talk about. It's a real sale. What you're doing is you're giving them 100% right to walk into your house, take the chametz, and eat it. It's a real sale. It's not like, well, wink, wink, nod, nod, you know, we sold it. No, no, no. It's a real documented contracted sale of the chametz. Not only that, we'll see this shortly, is that you have to give them access. So if there's a key, you got to give them a key. If there's a code, you got to give them the code. And you have to allow them entry and exit to attain the chametz that they purchased. Okay, so we'll see this. Therefore, if someone has a lot of chametz that will not be finished before Pesach, they should sell them to a non-Jew before the onset of Pesach, at a time when chametz is still allowed to be in your possession. The sale of chametz is not a joke, but rather it is a real and complete sale of the chametz. The chametz should not be sold at an inflated price, and the Jew should ask the non-Jew to sell it back to him after Pesach. If he decides not to, guess what? It's not yours. It's not a conditional sale. Well, I'm selling it to you only for these. No, 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 no. It's a pure sale. It's a contract. And guess what? You make a contract when you buy it back. The sale should not be nonchalant and casual, but it should be via a contract, a serious signed bill of sale. The chametz being sold should not be readily visible to the Jewish homeowner. 
it would be ideal if the non-Jewish purchaser takes the chametz to his own home. If that isn't possible, the room that the chametz is in should be rented to the non-Jew for Pesach. The sale contract should detail the exact room that is being rented and the exact chametz items being sold. Yeah, it's a real sale. Whatever is written in the contract should also be verbally explained to the Gentile. So, if it says, this closet, this room, this pantry, this, each detail should be verbally spoken out, not only in words that are on a contract, on a piece of paper, but tell them, yeah, in this location, you have this. In that location, you have that. The contract should be purchased by the non-Jew with actual money, and the key to the chametz room should be handed over as well. One should only sell the chametz and not the dishes or vessels that are holding the chametz, so as to avoid the need of tabling them upon return of sale. So anything that you buy from a non-Jew, any vessel that you buy from a non-Jew, needs to be brought to the mikvah. When you go to the store and you buy new pots and pans, before you use those pots and pans, you need to take your pots and pans to the mikvah. Why? Because our sages tell us that in the process of making them, the non-Jew could be dedicating these vessels for idolatry. And therefore, we table them and cleanse them, so to speak, ritual in a ritual bath, and now it's pure and it's holy. And now it can be used. So here's the thing. So imagine this, this vessel I bought from a non-Jewish company, probably made in China. I don't know where this is made. But when I bought this, before I used this, I took this to the mikvah, said a blessing, Altvilas Kalim, and then, and we're going to learn these laws soon, and then I'm able to use it. Now what happens if I have chametz in there and I sell, this is the chametz item, you have to make sure that you're selling the chametz that's in it, not the actual vessel. Because now when I sell it and I get it back from the non-Jew, I'm going to have to take it to the mikvah again and table it. So for that reason, you sell the chametz that's in it, not the actual vessel. If you sell just the chametz, not the vessel, then you don't have to take it back to the mikvah a second time. If one is unable to sell the chametz room for whatever reason, they should at least cordon off the chametz area. So in my house, when we grew up, we had like a drape that was closing off the chametz area. And this was, and we had a big sign on it that of course all the children would color in school and they'd chametz, chametz, do not, do not touch. This doesn't belong to you. It's not your property. Just like in someone's home, it says, welcome to the Schwartz family or the Greenbaum family. This is identifying that this is their home. This chametz area does not belong to you, okay? It belongs to the non-Jew who purchased it. Yes, it has to be an exchange for money. We actually, here in Houston, just so that you know, now I have a copy here of the contract. I'll print out more copies uh, So anybody who wants to do this. You do it through any of the local Orthodox rabbis. They get together as a bezdin. They meet with a non-Jew before Pesach, and they have a sale agreement. And he gets everybody's document, right? So he'll have the Walby family. He'll have the code to my house. He'll have the exact location where every piece of chametz is cordoned off. I'll give you an example. So we have uh, five shelves in our bar. 
of alcohol. And we sell that because we want to be able to drink it after Pesach, right? So, and it, now, some people don't sell actual chametz. Some people do. Okay, so for example, actual cookies, should I sell that? Or burn it before Pesach? It's your option. Many people have the, follow the, the, the authorities that say that only if it's a significant loss. So alcohol is expensive. It's a significant loss to just throw it all out. So therefore you can sell it. Right? If it's not a significant loss, it's a little bag of potato chips that you can burn with your chametz. You don't have to sell that. So, therefore, what we do is we section off those five shelves of alcohol, and it's covered. It's not we not we don't even see it, and it is sold. It is sold. We have a pantry that is sold. We have a closet in the back that is sold. We have a refrigerator that it's typically used throughout the year. We have all of our chametz that is going to go bad if it's out of the refrigerator. We have it, and we close off that fridge, and it's sold. And if the non-Jew comes on Friday morning of, of Passover, he says, hey, I'm here to have my uh, whatever it is, it's his. He's allowed to enjoy it, it's his. It's his property. So it depends. Uh, potato vodka should not be chametz. But again, it depends how it was made, where it was made, who made it, because what's if the guy sitting in that distillery is having his, you know, his sandwich for lunch, and uh, you know, pieces of uh, crumbs fall into your, into your uh, potato vodka? Is it likely? Unlikely. But again, you want to make sure. And that's why they have a rabbi who's actually in that facility, who's who's ensuring that you're getting stuff that is not adulterated and mixed with other things. Number 41. Also, the contract should include the rights of the non-Jew to access the chametz food being sold. So it's not, a lo- it's not enough for us to say, yeah, it's in the closet, but you have no way to get to it. right? They can, you're also selling them access to the chametz being sold. Number 42. The chametz purchased by the non-Jew in, is his property, and he may choose to sell it, Use it, consume it, as he sees fit. It's his. Number 43, if the seller of the chametz does not own the property they're renting, they can condition the access and not the property. So I'm conditioning the access. It's not my property to give to you, to allow you to, I can't rent you the property that's not mine, but I can allow you to have access to it. It is, number 44, it is forbidden to precondition the sale in a way that the non-Jew must resell the chametz back after Pesach. Rather, it should be purchased back with a profit for the non-Jew. So if he buys it for $500, you buy it back for $600. He made $100. He he made a profit on it. It should be clear and certain that the non-Jew is indeed a non-Jew born to a non-Jewish mother. Meaning, there are people who lose their status a mummer, for example. A mummer is someone who incites others to leave Judaism, so they lose their status of being Jewish. But because they're born Jewish, you can't sell them chametz, even though halachically they're not counted like a Jew. Number 46, one can and should sell chametz that is in his boat or car together with the chametz in his house. If a Jew receives a shipment from a non-Jew of chametz on Pesach, 
He should nullify it before a bezdin and should not handle it till after Pesach. So imagine this. You have a supermarket. So imagine you have a supermarket, kosher supermarket, and you get a shipment from a non-kosher vendor on Pesach of non-kosher for Passover products. What do you do now? So you should nullify it in front of a Bezdin. You go to the Bezdin, you go to a, a rabbinic court, and you tell them, I'm nullifying this chametz. It's not my possession. I'm not accepting possession of it. And don't handle it. Definitely don't put it on your shelves for right after Pesach. By the way, this is a very interesting problem that we have in many, many stores, particularly in New York, New Jersey, where you have many of the supermarkets are owned by Jews. So I remember we had a supermarket that was very close to our home. Uh, it was called ShopRite. And ShopRite was a big, it was one of the big supermarkets. It was owned by a Jewish family. Now, what do you do? They did not sell their chametz. One of the rabbis in the community would meet with the family and persuade him to sell the ownership of the chametz. And they would have certain aisles during Pesach that were not owned by them. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing, an amazing system. That And after Pesach, the rabbi would say, you can buy from this location, you can buy from that location, you can buy because we sold the chametz for them. Right, so, the, so Fiesta, in Houston, Fiesta was a problem. Belden's was a problem. This was a big issue that you couldn't buy non-kosher for Passover products from them till it was enough time that they would recycle their... So, for example, if you had cookies, so about every 30 to 60 days, they get a new shipment of cookies. So their new shipment of cookies that were non-kosher for Passover, you can buy after a period of time that it would have been sold. Okay, HEB is not a problem. It's not owned by a Jew. So you can go right after Pesach and you can buy anything you want from HEB. Not a problem. Randall's, I believe, as well. Um, it's also a question about all of these publicly traded companies where you can have Jewish shareholders. So if the majority is non-Jewish held, then it's, um, it's less of a problem. Okay, number 48. One who owns a mill that people rent to grind their grains should be sold to a non-Jew before Pesach. There is disagreement whether one should sell their animals to be fed chametz on Pesach by a non-Jew. Ask your bona fide Orthodox rabbi. One may lend chametz to a Jew before Pesach that will be returned after Pesach. Some are stringent about this. So imagine this. Someone comes to your house a week before Pesach and they say, do you have an extra box of cereal, my kids? I, I'm not, my car broke down. I'm not able to go. Whatever. So they borrow the box of cereal. When are they going to return that box of cereal? After Pesach, they're going to go to the store and buy you a new box of cereal. That's fine. It's okay for them to, quote, owe you a non-kosher for Passover item over Passover. Sorry, number 51. If a Jew has possession of chametz that belongs to a non-Jew over Pesach or vice versa, a bona fide rabbi should be asked. One should be extra cautious not to benefit or enjoy chametz that was owned by a Jew over Pesach. We mentioned this previously, that you're not allowed to benefit or enjoy or take pleasure from a Jewish-owned chametz item that was owned over Pesach and not sold. And here is the text that should be used in the sale of the chametz. And actually, in the Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch, it brings the actual text in Hebrew 
And here's the English I. This I copied from our local uh, rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Nagel, and the best in Houston. And uh, for those of you who are interested, I'm, I'm going to put the link in the description of the podcast and the video. And whoever wants can email their sale before Erev Pesach. So it shouldn't be done the morning of, because I don't know that he'll receive it. Uh, but there should be an actual... So what we do is we go to the rabbi, we give him our document of sale. This sale document uh, is brought to the rabbi, and now the rabbi, in order to be able to sell it for you, he needs to acquire this chametz from you. So you actually make a sale to the rabbi, and you make him a designated, as is written in the document here, I, the undersigned, fully empower as my agent, my shliach, and permit Rabbi Yaakov Nagel and or the Besdin of Houston to act in my place instead and on my behalf to sell, trade, or give away all chametz possessed by me, knowingly or unknowingly, as defined by the Torah and rabbinic law, chametz, doubt of chametz, and all kinds of chametz mixtures, as well as chametz that tends to harden and to adhere to a surface or of pans, pots. Right Now we understand what it's talking about, right? And we give the full right to dispose of the chametz as they see fit, etc., etc. Now, the rabbis will take this document, and you see it's dated. There's a name, there's a home address, an office address, and the main general locations of the chametz to be sold, but not to the exclusion of other locations. And then there's a checkbox of whether or not you're staying in town for Yamtif, because if you're away from town, it needs to be sold early enough that wherever the location is that you're at, it's going to be sold before you have Pesach there. So if someone's in Israel, it's an eight-hour difference. It needs to be sold eight hours earlier because you're going to be at a different location. So it goes by you. And it says if you're leaving, if you're leaving before a certain date, then they typically sell it before that date. Okay, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed. Those are the laws of Erev Pesach. 